Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknesum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm I'm both good and grumpy. Good and grumpy. Well, tell me about the good first. Give me the good news first. Um. Well, I, I'm doing some good work, and I, 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 some people did some work on me. Uh, they they took a little bit of my body out, and it was okay. Um, and I don't have anything to worry about that, you know, which is really excellent. Um, and then I'm grumpy because, well, you know, does anyone really need an excuse to be grumpy anymore? Not really. I mean, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I think we can just be grumpy and, and be good hearted about it. Um, <laughs> and, and work forward on, on some cool stuff. And, and but not forget our grumpiness, which yes, 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 I agree with that one hundred percent. I think that it is getting cold. It's getting dark early. The world is as messy as it's ever been, but broadcast more broadly due to the wonderful world of social media. And so there are many things out there that uh, are worth being grumpy about. You know, human human beings are troublesome creatures but it's is it's good as you said to sort of take it in stride and roll with the flow so to speak and every once in a while put on some james brown <laughs> there you, you know, go there that, you go i i think that is that is the answer to uh the problem i i think there is an answer culturally um across the board that that is a, a cure for grumpiness, and so one of the things I I want to talk to you about. Tonight, I mean, we have some thank yous to people around the world who are listening to us, and um, I am particularly um, proud of 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 some of the African you know listeners that we are trying to find who have a lot of things on their minds. Um, but I want to put to you the idea of joyful skepticism, joyful and skepticism as a combined phrase. What does that mean to you? Joyful skepticism to me is a perfect an antidote, not anecdote, but antidote to the current skepticism that we have today. Now, the problem with skepticism today is that it's largely atheistic. It's people who believe in largely nothing. It's, it's a nihilistic philosophy. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the problem is, is that atheist skeptics negate from a point of nothingness. And if you're trying to negate from a point of nothingness, what you become is a human black hole that absorbs all the, the joy and enchantment out of the world. And you kind of suck it. You become this center of gravity around which no joy can exist. So joyful skepticism, conversely, deals with things like um, the paranormal and the occult and the strange and things that don't fit into, you know, the round hole of current paradigms. So what I mean by that is a joyful skeptic rather than trying to take the wind out of someone's sails because of their 
they're either deeply held or loosely held beliefs. You simply try to poke holes with the intention of filling those holes up with wonder and interest in what's going on. So that is my working definition. Could use a little bit of work maybe, but that's where I'm at right now with joyful skepticism. I'd like to actually flip that back to you and ask what you think joyful skepticism means. Well, you know, I've been reading uh, Darwin again very, very closely and Wallace. I've gone back to um, really reading all of the major scientific uh, texts that are available to me uh, in, in good translation. But, you know, Darwin wrote in English, and um, it, it, the difference between the, the voyage of the beagle and on the origin of species is very, very interesting. In the, in the beagle trip, as a young man, there's a wonderful moment which many people, you know, are, I don't think Richard Dawkins remembers this, you know. But Darwin talks about, he doesn't talk about, he's ecstatic about seeing a gaucho in Argentina, naked, riding a horse. And, and okay, this is, this is a man who would go, who was really on furlough from being a minister and being married off into an aristocratic English family. And he was more interested in geology and um, mollusks and maybe a naked gaucho, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he got really hot about that. And I think that's fabulously interesting for the history of science. And people, you know, don't really remember that. But when I think of joyful skepticism, I think of Charles Fort, um, who really uh, was a prosecutor of, of, of knowledge. And, and unlike a lot of people, I, I don't think prosecutors are bad people. I, I, I think Miles Davis, who I worked for, was the greatest prosecutor of melody in the 20th century. Um, and I, I think Fort tried to prosecute an idea of what we accept as knowledge without any examination. And he looked into that. Uh, and along the way, you know, he, he was talking about some monsters. And, and, and hands up who doesn't like monsters. Yeah. Like, remind me right. again. <laughs> right, know? right. Yes, yes. You know? A hundred percent, yeah. Charles Ford is definitely a hero of mine. Um, he was an American writer. Um, I believe he wrote a lot of fiction, although most of it didn't get published. The, the accounts kind of That's go correct. back and forth as to the quality of his prose. The consensus seems to be that it, it wasn't terribly good. Um, but I personally have not read any of it, mostly because if I remember correctly, I believe he burned most of his fiction manuscripts uh, at a certain point. He was known for doing that. This might be a slight detour, but Fort was this incredible collector, but also destroyer of knowledge. He often bragged that he would, because he would keep 
a Rolodex of all the all of his damned facts, which we'll get to here soon. But the shorthand for it is that these are uh, reports of anomalous things happening. He would keep this huge Rolodex of them, and he often bragged that at one point in a fit of what we would call today sort of depression. Back then it was more melancholia. Um, he went out uh, into the woods and allowed what he says to be about 48,000 of these accounts to just be taken by the wind. He just threw them off of a cliff. <laughs> so this, isn't that interesting? That sounds like an ex-wife of mine. <laughs> but with your clothes, right? Um, but no, with this guy... What is the deal with with burning manuscripts and and tossing away, you know, uh, months and months of hard work uh, collecting these kind of things? Is there something to that? Do you think? Yes, I do think there is. Um, you know, Jim Morrison said, "Burn your notebooks." Uh, Kafka requested, <laughs> as he was dying, for Max Brod to burn you know, his, his work. And Max uh, said later, uh, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to violate that, that trust. Um, but, you know, I think with, with, with Fort, um, one of his great uh, colleagues was Theodore Dreiser. Dreiser who, um, is his biggest champion, too. You know, and I think Dreiser is a very overlooked American writer. I, hmm. I, I, I've been, you know, thinking about an American tragedy and Sister Carrie. I, I don't know anyone who put forward the the hardcore. Um, well, we can't even call them, uh, you know, middle class, it, the, the underclass of, of of people into an American literature scene. Um, I mean, was it Steinbeck? Was it Faulkner? No, I, I don't think so. I think I think Dreiser did a great job, and what he said of Fort, uh, which I love, and I kind of think of um, I think of you in this regard. Dreiser said he's my favorite monster. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I you will know? take it. That's the nicest thing anybody's yeah, I, ever said I, to me. I hope you do. I hope you do. <laughs> I, I think I think you've earned that right. Mm -hmm. um, and people listening, um, David and I are going to try to make a documentary film. And I did say documentary, didn't I? I, did. I said that clearly. Yes. Um, over the, the coming North American summer, uh, because we are going hunting. And I said that word right, that verb, hunting. I, mm -hmm. I, I said that clearly. Mm -hmm. um, we are going hunting for... A giant, legendary squid in a lake yes. in Oklahoma. Yes, yes. It's a very, it is a very common uh, urban legend around these parts that Lake Thunderbird, which is about twenty-five miles east of where I live, is populated not just by sort of Atlantean um, structures. Uh, the idea being that the lake was there long before the first white man ever stepped foot near it. Um, but that it also houses a giant squid. I actually, I wrote a piece for the filmmaker Nicholas Winding Refn's website, bynwr.com, uh, that features this squid prominently. And <laughs> Chris and I think that it would just be this hilariously awesome, serious-minded, but also fun 
because it's just kind of our personalities, to ask some of the uh, rougher, transient folks that congregate around my house about the giant squid, and then go try to find it. Go look for it. You know, I think this is the... Don't we all have a giant squid story to tell? I, I hope that we can get back to, maybe not in this episode, but, but maybe later, uh, the, the strange, uh, you know, insane asylum um, that, you, that is in your area. Because um, I, I, I used to work in, you know, in a psych ward. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't in the psych ward. I was an orderly in the psych ward. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> But I think people want to talk about. Uh, well, let's let's break that word down. The paranormal, which is what Fort gave us, para meaning beyond and normal. Well, no one actually looks at normal very much, do they? Normal is entirely a socially coded idea. It's not an intellectually inherent idea at all. So all he started to do was to ask, well, what is normal? What's anomalous? Anomalies are, are, are his kind of damn facts, as you said. Mm-hmm. And, and what a great... People who um, want to find out more about Fort should look at Dover Publishing, who are one of the greatest publishers still in existence today. They have all of his work... Uh, you can you can just go online and and order them and they're beautiful surviving uh, serious paperback uh, works that are not not uh, you know expensive but they're beautifully produced and everything that he's written is available through Dover. Um, but let's talk about this idea of. The para, the normal, and Oklahoma, and, well, I think paranormal and Oklahoma go together really rather well. I think so, too. I think so, too. I think that a lot of the accounts that you have from people about extraterrestrial encounters, ghost encounters, uh, sort of center around the Midwest and Oklahoma in particular, I remember when I was in high school, I lived uh, in Lawton, which is sort of a sister city. It's, it's mashed right up against Fort Sill. And Fort Sill was where the uh, Native American chief Geronimo was held for quite some time. And we would often make um, sort of pilgrimages, drunk, high, tripping balls, whatever, to Geronimo's grave which is this great cairn of stones that is shaded by uh, an oak tree that has all these sort of streamers hanging from it. it was, it's very Blair Witch. It's very creepy. But uh, at one point we went to visit, in the middle of the night, the, um, the outside building, the, the cell where Geronimo was held, and several friends of mine and I can all vouch for seeing strange shadowy figures moving within the cell itself because if I remember correctly, isn't the head of Geronimo, isn't that currently owned by 
some sort of Freemason group or Illuminati or something like that. His 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 head is not with his body. Is that correct or am I making that up? Um you know, I, I think you might be making that up. I don't know that for a fact. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. I do know that his um that he was photographed many times late late in life. Um uh and I think that that well one of the things that I, I, I wonder about as a skydiver is that, you know, when, when you go out of a plane, you say Geronimo. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that, that some of the legends around him uh, have to do with the fact that he did get photographed quite a bit late in life. Hmm. Um, hmm. And I, I'm not sure. That would be a very interesting thing to find out where where, you know, his head is. I mean... Um, that that sounds like a terrible thought to have, doesn't it? But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so to go to go back to the idea of the the paranormal in Oklahoma, when you're talking about the, so it's super normal, right? It's above normal. Um, I think that see, see, go ahead, David. I just want to interrupt. That's that's the way to think about the paranormal, as opposed to on the side. It's a prepositional phrase of going above, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. metanormal. Yeah, exactly. And in the in that way, I think that people, you know, in this sort of postmodern age where words don't necessarily mean uh, what they mean anymore, paranormal has become shorthand for quackery or, um, you know, you, you think immediately of, you know, somebody with a Bigfoot poster in their... Uh, in their den, you know, just looking at every possible sighting. I've seen some really fascinating accounts, by the way, that have said that Bigfoot is in fact an inter interdimensional being. Um, but you, you sort of think about that, (laughs) but I, I think paranormal squares completely with Charles Ford's damned facts, because the thing about these, and I believe it was Fort who said something along these lines. I'm going to paraphrase there's para again. Um, I'm going to paraphrase this idea, but the thing about paranormal activity or, you know, urban legends is that they only have to be true one time. That's it. They don't mm-hmm. have, you can get a thousand facts that are all proven to be incorrect, but if even one of them evades explanation, then you've got a case on your hands, don't you? Well, you know, this is something I'm really thinking about with my um, textbook for uh, Rutledge Press, which is, you know, in theory it's about creative writing, but I hope it's about really cognition and and changing the human mind, uh, which sounds like a very ambitious goal. But you know, um, if you get a, if you have a book contract, well, why not be ambitious? William Burroughs said. If you don't see it the first time, you won't see it again. And I think that is a really important insight. And this, this is one of the things the Solomon Islanders taught me. Things seem mysterious when you're not paying attention. But really, if you are paying attention... Maybe things aren't that that weird. Mm-hmm. Maybe things aren't that anomalous. And maybe what Charles Fort was talking about was simply 
paying more attention. We, we, we've had a bunch of these people, uh, you know, and I think Rupert Sheldrake is trying to tell us about a different kind of attention. I think John Lilly, um, it, you know, people in our lifetime, my lifetime anyway, are trying to tell us to wake up and look around and maybe things aren't really as weird as they seem, you know? Can you, just for our listeners who might not know, can you explain who John Lilly is? Yes, John Lilly uh, was a graduate of Caltech. He was the, the foremost uh, inventor of, uh, really, the sensory deprivation tank idea. He was the, the chief... Uh, in you know, commentator, theorist about cetacean, as in dolphin and whale communication. He he's referenced in the Day of the Dolphin and Altered States. Um, he experimented broadly in the Virgin Islands and Hawaii about inter uh, animal communication, um, but he was a, a a really a pioneer of a different idea about consciousness, um, which we have, we're coming back to with people like Douglas Hofstadter. Um, but uh, did, was that an answer? He, yes, he was the foremost, yes. Um, you know. Yes, perfect. So essentially, one of the, the sort of round table of glorious weirdos that we venerate on shows like this. Um, that's a beautiful way to put it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, you are my favorite monster, actually. Yeah, well, it's an honor. I, uh, But yeah, no, so, so to sort of talk about Fort and his, his damned facts and his paranormal, uh, um, what he was doing was essentially fulfilling the role that you articulated of the joyful skeptic. It's a skeptic whose purpose is not to suck the enchantment out of every last bit of life that you can possibly get. These people wonder why they're depressed. You know what I mean? <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. Like, you take everything that's cool and interesting and say, I'm going to reduce this to electrical f uh, firings across the synapses of our brain. Like, I'm going to, like, I heard recently an explanation for deja vu, which was that the two hemispheres of the brain are not communicating with each other. They're just a, a 0.00001% of a second behind each other. So you are seeing, creating a memory, and then, and then living the memory. And I'm sorry, but that to me sounds like bullshit, right? That doesn't account for the fact that you would think that a brain would have mechanisms in place for that because it has to have like, so the questions that I would have is number one, what causes a brain to fall out of step like that? And then what causes a brain to fall back into step so that deja vu no longer happens. But what you've done by re like relegating this to the hemispheres of your brain, not communicating properly is that you've essentially taken away all the more interesting theories such as, you know, past lives, the idea that we have lived this life before and that we're living it again, uh, the fact that dreams might uh, be precognitive and that we might have dreamt something that we're doing before, 
which is which opens up all this stuff. So these are things that Fort would be interested in. Fort would sort of scoff. Well, he would do, I think, exactly what I just did with that hemispheric explanation for what the brain does. He would sort of say, well, what about this and what about this? But it's all in the service of building a larger worldview rather than a smaller one. You know, what? one of the questions I have, um, there are two thinkers that, that really, um, I think, really matter a great deal. Uh, Bergson and, and William James. And I think they would have an enormous amount of time for, well, they did have an enormous amount of time for Fort. Um, yeah. James asked the question, do we run from the bear because we're afraid? Or do we run... And then we package that idea as fear after the fact. Mm, so you interesting. And yeah. Yeah. That, 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 you know, that, that, that is a big cognitive question for all of humans. Um, because I think we, we just do some things, uh, you know, without even understanding what, what we do. I have a friend who has been, uh, with, with permission, filming uh, a group of students in a house, kind of like a Big Brother sort of thing. And um, o- over the last uh, two months, everyone failed the question of where they were at a certain time and mm-hmm. what they were doing. Mm-hmm. In, in a house, they didn't get to leave the house, you know? They have no memory of what they were doing, and yet we have people going, "Oh, I know what was happening in the seventeenth century you know <laughs> you know i I know about those boats that that I don't didn't understand how people built, you know, and we're getting a little tired of this, aren't we are are you I am yeah, yeah, well, I read a study recently that said since the advent of Social media. So this is a correlation, not a causation. Just want to, you know, make sure that I'm making that clear. Before social media, in harmony, nice. Yeah. Before social media, our attention span was not great because television had already been, you know, invented. So the average person was able to focus on one particular thought or idea for seven seconds. Already sounds pretty bad. You want to know what it got to after social media was invented? Hit me. Three seconds. <laughs> so we are, you know, a goldfish has a memory of about a second. So we really are getting closer and closer to goldfish territory. But I think that what you say about this house and people not knowing where they were, I think that's a great exercise. I, I would I would encourage listeners to attempt to do that I, very intentionally, right? At a certain point of a day, I think it would be really cool to recognize the time, the place, and without writing it down, take a mental picture of where you are. Try to remember the smells and the sounds, the feelings that you that you have, and then you know set a timer in your phone 
for two or three days later that just says, remember that time and see if you can do it. See if you can intentionally begin to remember the past. Doesn't that sound cool? Well, that, that is one of my ideas. And I, I, I'll share with you and um, our listeners, um, I, I can't obviously give all 30 steps away, 30 steps to strengthening your mind. Mm. I said that, you know, mm-hmm. I, that's, my, that's my claim to the world. Um, but, but one of my steps is this. Most of them are all things that, that, that don't require any money that you could just do, uh, you know, any, anyone can do. This one does require uh, some money. Um, it requires you to be able to buy a Black Friday GoPro kind of action video camera, you know, which is really not that expensive. Mm-hmm. And then I say... We'll strap it on to the back of your head and go for a walk around your neighborhood. You will see something, you will see from the back of your head, which is a really odd idea, and, it, and it's very, very informative. Um, but pretty damn cool. Well, I think it's a great idea, and I, I, I think that you, it's the only idea in my, th- in my list of 30 that really requires some money. Um, but I don't think that, I, I, that it's that much money, and I think people um, have these kind of things uh, around anyway. They just might not think about putting them on the back of their head, mm-hmm. which is you know what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about changing consciousness, changing awareness. How do we do that? Well, we have to do that through um, a program shift, a paradigm shift. Um, and, and, and people like Charles Ford and Rupert Sheldrake and John Lilly um, and Rachel Carson and, you know, there are many women who have tried to sort of, uh, you know, suggest a paradigm shift Will we get to that point or not? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of of just some things that Fort said. Um, there's a quote here uh, that says, I believe nothing. I have shut myself away from the rocks and wisdom of ages, from the so-called great teachers of all time. And perhaps because of that isolation, I am given to bizarre hospitalities. I shut the front door upon Christ and Einstein and at the back door hold out a welcoming hand to little frogs and periwinkles. I believe nothing of my own that I have ever written. I cannot accept that the products of minds are subject matter for beliefs, but I accept with reservations that give me freedom to ridicule the statement at any other time that showers of an edible substance that has not been traced to an origin upon this earth have fallen from the sky in Asia Minor. I think that that's that's pretty great, right? So it's basically that ties into me the idea of putting the camera on the back of your head because of the front door back door idea, right? So there's this front door of your mind that is your eyeballs and your senses, <clears throat> what you can see in front of you and what you can do. But I think that yours is a very interesting technological update on this about like what's going on like what's going on behind everything. 
Like, what's going on behind you right now? Not to make any of our listeners paranoid, but... <laughs> <laughs> no. But do you see what I'm getting at there? It's, it's, it's such an interesting, you know, extrasensory sort of thing. It's, it's messing with subjectivity in a way that I think can lead to just a more kind of porous, sponge-like ability to exist in the world. You know, you've said a couple of things there that I think are really interesting. Bizarre hospitalities and messing with subjectivity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that messing with subjectivity is the entire point of human consciousness. I love that. And oh, it, that might be the line of the show. Sorry to interrupt you. That was just great. Well, Can you it, say, it, it, say, it, say it again for, for the people in the back. Messing with subjectivity is the entire point of human consciousness. Mm. David said that. I, I, I just picked up on it. Oh. Um, but I think it, it's true. I think this is exactly what's happening. And, you know, the subject... How many times do I have to tell people this? The subject equals the object. There is no subject without the object, right? Correct. We have this dichotomy. We have this absolute wicked binary built into the English language and built into all uh, languages that I know. Um, I I think they are actually built into language generally. Um, And I would welcome some, you know, speakers of Mandarin to, to really question that. But I certainly know that, that that's, that's true of the Romance languages and everything that, that really is near to the broken English that I try to speak. Um, but, you know, what if we broke with that whole idea and said, is there really a subjective point of view, really? Mm-hmm. What does that actually mean? I mean, this is one of the things I think that going back to Fort, I think he was saying, well, I I ask you, don't you think he was asking if we inherit some of these cultural ideas about what is true um, and we just kind of let them go as that? Yeah, he once said... um this is Fort that I'm quoting. My own notion is that it's very unsportsmanlike to ever mention fraud, except anything, then explain it your way. Anything that assimilates with one explanation must have assimilable relations to some degree with all other explanations, if all explanations are somewhat continuous. I mean, that's what you're talking about here, right? Yes, it is. It is, absolutely. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And continuous is a very important word because that implies a level of coherence and cohesion over time mm-hmm. that is the essence of, of meaning. Mm-hmm. And the problem with our attention and physical and social atomization that we're going through today is that it renders us completely unable to make one of these continuous lines that Fort, you, me, are talking about. You have to be able to create a timeline, at least in your own head. Well, your own head is all that you got. I just said at least in your head, but I think I would rather say at most in your head, you know, because I can't be in your head right now you can't be in mind so that's what we've got but the the idea of 
being able to construct um, narrative, narrative that's more interest that's more interesting, that's more perhaps true in a way. There's different kinds of truth. These are very these are very fraught waters. You know, every almost every word that I said in that last sentence, I almost want to qualify in some sort of way. But I'll just assume that you know that I know that you do. But I'll assume that the listeners are going with me as well. Um, assembling that kind of strange, joyful, skeptical subjectivity is is the product is the project rather of consciousness. I certainly agree with that last line. Um... You know, but I don't agree with the line that um, you're not in my head because I, I wonder where you are if you're not in my head. Um, and I, I don't accept that you're in some sort of electromagnetic radiation thing that's just being broadcast, you know. Um, I, I don't accept that at all. I, I think you are in my head. Um, and I think that, that our heads are not what we think they are. And I, I think that this is one of a, a topic to, um, to move on to in our next episode. But getting past um, what people like Ford and, and John Lilly and Rupert Sheldrake are talking about is, and frankly, um, Wallace, who, who was the counter to Darwin. Um, we forget what he put forward. And, and people who have not read his, his work, um, well, I, I just suggest that you do, uh, because it was a different version of the 19th century. And, you know, it, it, there were some nihilistic people who put forward some ideas, of, and, and Darwin is one of them. Um, and Marx is another, and Nietzsche is another. Uh, we didn't have to have the nihilism of the 19th century to become the 21st century that we are now. And I, I suggest looking around at some other people who are a little bit more, uh, I don't know, warmer, friendlier, maybe they got laid more, you know? That, <laughs> Certainly more that, than right? Nietzsche, for sure. Without a doubt. Yeah, you know, there is that. Um, but but what, what Dave and I are trying to do is talk about a magical culture that is still achievable today despite, uh, well, some horrors and, and, and some difficulties of our time. But magic, that's what magic is, is supposed to do, right? It is what it's supposed to do. And I think that that's the... I almost want to say the purpose that it served, but purpose is too materialistic and machinistic. Machinistic might be the word that I'm looking for. Yeah, um, that's the one. There, it's not necessarily that it's a purpose that serves an end. It's it is the er state of you know all consciousness for all beings. So when you do that, you're just essentially tapping into the way that things are supposed to be looked at in the first place. We've done a lot of very devilish work in the past couple centuries, um, made a lot of technological advancements in the process where we have these phones that we're talking on and these microphones that we're talking into. But 
we've really kind of lost the what it means to be human. And I would like to take a moment here uh, talking about that to talk a bit about the uh, the weekly world news. <laughs> um, that classic newspaper that's on used to be on every spin rack and every grocery store that you would ever see. It predates the onion by quite some time, but it was a newspaper of the of the weird and wild that you have some connection to, I believe. I used to write headlines for them just out of nowhere and sell them for twenty dollars a headline, you know? And um Yes, if you don't like the World Weekly News and um, the idea of the outrageous headline, which has informed and changed the entire history of journalism, uh, well, I don't know what to say. But, but hit us up, David. Hit us up. Okay, so I found some recent ones that I thought were fun. And what I want people to do as an exercise is to consider these headlines and the stories that follow to be true. Let's get into that mindset. Let's turn off the rational brain where we are, you know, saying, well, this is fiction and this was written by people who are getting 20 bucks a pop for the headlines bubble, because I'd have to assume it hasn't changed that much since you did it, considering the way the economy is going. Um, here's the first one. And I just thought this was really funny. The headline is... Delaware is missing. (laughs) And the article begins, how about this for a first paragraph? The Federal Bureau of Investigation confirmed that Delaware, the seventh largest broiler chicken exporter in the nation, has mysteriously disappeared. (laughs) I'm having to back up my chair. Yeah. Eight days after receiving a tip from a concerned citizen, authorities arrived at the Maryland-Delaware border. There they found a gaping <laughs> hole in the ground. <laughs> there they found a gaping hole in the ground where the proud state had once been. It's not that we don't believe the person that called it in. The FBI is extremely busy. We didn't get around to it until today, said the lead FBI investigator Michael Harmony. Sources confirmed a weekly world news agent Harmony's claim. They cited the FBI's webpage's calendar, which boasted National Grandparents' Day, the Jewish the Jewish holiday Shavuot, and the annual FBI Fun Run Lunchathon, all in the same week. Okay, so that's pretty funny. Uh, there's a headline. You think? Yeah. There's a headline here that says uh, "Flatulence Saves Man from Kidnappers." Thank God I had that third burrito. He explains. And it's all about a man who is going to be kidnapped, but then his flatulence essentially drives the the kidnappers off. So we're in the territory now of Bat Boy. Um, Here we see a a headline that says, uh, Georgia hired the wrong poll workers with a picture of a stripper. Um, So here's the exercise, right? If you were to go into these... Now, there are people, I'm sure, who read the Weekly World News and believe everything that's written in there um and that sort of informs their worldview in what we could call maybe an unhealthy way but i think an interesting (laughs) an interesting when you say unhealthy i i I start to worry (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh 
But I think it wouldn't it be interesting to go to this website, read these headlines, and sort of put yourself in the headspace that everything that you read is is true. Because whereas the Onion is very clearly making jokes, uh, which you know, it's arguable that WWN's doing that too. But let, live in a world for a second where all of these things are true. And I think that that is getting you close to Charles Fort's damned facts brain. If you want to find a newspaper or a news source um, that is maybe a slightly more based in quote unquote reality, heavy scare quotes with that one, then that's totally fine. But what I, the thing that sort of pushed me over the edge, I, and I can't remember who initially said this, so I have to, <laughs> I have to, for, I, they'll have to forgive me, but it's it just pushed you over the edge. Which edge was that, my mm, friend? I, the I, final, the final edge, the final edge. Okay. Was the idea of go into magical practices, whether that's summoning a demon or doing the tarot, doing any type of divination, go into it, whether you think that it's complete nonsense or not, go into it with the mindset that it is real. Actually change your brain to start accepting these things as true, and some really fun things start to happen. So you don't become an unhinged conspiracy theorist, usually. But what it does is it begins to sort of open you up to different possibilities. You're doing, you're basically what Robert Anton Wilson would have called reality tunnel shifting. You are creating an entirely new reality tunnel. And necessarily, by going into th those things and sort of pretending or LARPing that those things are real, you're opening yourself up to actually challenging what the mainstream material uh, narrative is. I just think it's a good exercise. Well, I would agree with that, but I would also tell our listeners that um, my business partner just mentioned, mentioned summoning a demon. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've just jumped out of airplanes and, and, and dealt with people who smuggle guns, you know, yeah. um, and, and try to teach, uh, you know, at universities. So I'm not talking about summoning demons myself, um, mm -hmm. but I like that idea. Um, I'm a little bit worried, actually, about people who can do that. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that um, the best advice that I've heard on that is that you treat them like wild animals. You don't trust them for a second. You mind all your P's and Q's. You do what you got to do. I personally have never done it because I'm too scared. But um, You've got a pregnant wife. Yeah, I don't want to bring that kind of negative energy here. But I was using that as an example, right? If if you if one is so occultishly inclined, they should ap approach those things as real, and in doing so, it will in fact make them real. Well, see, that's a very very interesting idea, um, and I think that means more than um, you know the old cliche of of thinking make it makes it so. Um, how do we make something real? Out of nothing? Well, that's an interesting question. So in what context exactly? Like what I'm talking about, basically? Like how does, how does that make it real? Well, do you think demons are real? Yeah, I do. Um, 
But I also think that I think that the universe responds to you playing with it. And what I mean by that is that whenever you start to play around with um, the exercise that I'm talking about or uh, more occult, scary stuff, the universe starts talking back to you. So I had this um, instance the other day where I was driving my car back from dropping my wife off at work because I don't want her to drive because, you know, pregnant and all that kind of stuff. And I was getting back into Carl Jung's Red Book, which is just sort of a a perennial Bible for me that I I dip my toes back into frequently. But I was uh, encouraged to to do so recently because I had had noticed that there was a podcast that was talking about it with a a guy named... The podcast is called Hermetics, and the guy's name is Paul Bishop, who is being interviewed. And he's a prominent scholar of, uh, of, of, Jung, of all things Jungian, right? And so the, um, I experienced a, an intense synchronicity when this happened. So I'm driving back on I-35 and I'm listening to the podcast and the interviewer asks Paul Bishop, what was Jung's conception of God? And as he asks that question, I got cut off by a white Acura with the license plate CG, so those are Carl Jung's first two initials, right? Then, right. then a letter that was not a J. So synchronicities are never a hundred percent, right? It's so it was CG, and then the last three numbers were seven seven seven. Now, I would <laughs> I would put to you, I would put to you, for me to be listening of all the podcasts in all the world. I was listening to that one at that time. It was about an hour and a half long. I was about a third of the way through it, and at the exact moment that that question was asked, I see that license plate. So the odds for that are too astronomical, really, to even calculate. And I tell that story to say that I think that the universe plays back with you. So to tie that back into your initial question of how do you make things real, you make things real by beginning to pretend that they're real. Pretending is part of the game. Pretending is not making uh, falsehoods or myths or faking or lying. Pretending is playing by a set of rules that the universe uh, has that are not necessary to play by, but that if you do play by them, things start to necessarily become real, right? So the trick to doing an effective tarot reading, for example, is uh, not to treat it like you're reading the meanings of the cards off of a sheet of paper, but to play it as though it's a game, right? To believe that you're interacting with an intelligence, right? And once you fake it, this is why so many of the best sort of magicians and and mystics were all in their own way charlatans, because this is a rune soup idea that I'm using here just to give full credit to it. But the idea of... um, of making those things work, you have to be a little bit of a charlatan, right? You have to be wrong as much as you're right. But the consequence of not doing that is that the universe becomes stagnant and boring. You know, it makes me think of um, a wonderful book by Anne Lamont, Annie Lamont, Bird by Bird, which a lot of most writers would know. It's another synchronicity. I have it right here in front of me. But you know what? Hmm. 
I, I, I was told by some people on an island that most people can't even find, you know, mm-hmm. and they don't know and care about those people. They, they didn't say bird by bird. They told me to follow one bird all day. And that is the difference between what I'm talking about and what a lot of people in America are talking about is just that, can you follow one bird all day? Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. really? (laughs) You you think you can do that? Mm -hmm. So I I think what we've got is an interesting uh, discussion about what is anomalous behavior, and and I, I I'd like to talk about that that word anomaly uh, in our next episode, um, because I think it's critical to Charles Fort, um, but to to prosecute science with a good heart, you know, mm-hmm. and an open mind, and and to be scientific, you know, the the people who created science. <laughs> We're all skeptics. We're not inventing anything new here. Mm-hmm. We're just following the plan. Yep. Yep. Trusting the plan, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so to kind of wrap this up, just so that the listeners know, this is going to be part of a three-part series that we're doing on Fort. So uh, Chris and I are going to talk, I believe next episode, we're talking more about how to apply this idea to making art and writing. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and, and bringing forward monsters and, and supporting people who are making monsters and, and, and really having um, some fun with the idea of monsters. But yes, more into the realm of um, what this kind of scientific skepticism means to arts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we go, I have a quote that I want to end it off on, but I know that Chris wants to do some thank yous, and I want to do just a quick announcement. So for our last episode, that one was exclusively on the No Country podcast feed. Um, we've been getting some great numbers when I post them to the JDO show, um, much bigger than any regular episode of the JDO show gets. So I know that people are going to that to listen to these episodes specifically. However, we are attempting to separate them. Unfortunately, with the last episode, because it was only on the No Country feed, our listenership dropped a bit, and I don't want to see that happen. Uh, I've been very excited about the listenership that we've gotten. I'm very protective of it, and I don't want people to to miss out on these episodes. So I'm going to cross-post this one and probably the next one really as many as it takes to get people to kind of shift over until I start to see those numbers on the No Country feed match the ones on the JDO show feed. So I'm just saying, uh, please do visit, I will link it in the JDO show feed, uh, please do visit nocountrypod.podbean.com. It's on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, I, I went down the line, Amazon, I went down the line and, and made sure that it was on everything. So whatever podcatcher you use, there's even a an obscure one that a listener messaged me and asked to put it on there. So it's it's on, I think it's like Pod XL or something like that. So we are across 
platforms right now. There, there should be no real problem with that, but I will continue to cross post uh, in the interest of not you know, losing the, the listenership that Chris and I have built up over the past you know, 15 episodes or so. But on that note, I will hand the floor over to Chris. Uh, yeah, go for it, man. Thank you to the people of the world. Um, some places that, 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 you know, are hard to get to listening to us. And um, David and I will continue to prosecute our ideas in as sensible uh, an intellectual and rational Western way as, as we know how to do. But we will also use some intuitive uh, channels that are not uh, part of the, the Western idea. And we appreciate people who are not part of that tradition listening to us from some very strange places, you know? And I, I, I don't know. David knows what... He hasn't been there, but he knows what these kind of people might be like. And uh, we thank you for trying to hear us across the miles and through whatever technology you have. Thank you. Perfect. And on that note, I will leave you with this quote from Mr. Charles Fort. Witchcraft always has a hard time until it becomes established and changes its name. We hear much of the conflict between science and religion, but our conflict is with both of these. Science and religion always have agreed in opposing and suppressing the various witchcrafts. Now that religion is inglorious, one of the most fantastic of transferences of worships is that of glorifying science as a beneficent being. It is the attributing of all that is of development or of possible betterment to science. But no scientist has ever upheld a new idea without bringing upon himself abuse from other scientists. Science has done its utmost to prevent whatever science has done.